This is Sansom Speaks, informing and educating our community on important health topics. We believe the more you know, the more you will get out of your healthcare experience. Presented by the Women's Council of Sansom Clinic. Hi, I'm Dr. Kurt Ransohoff, the CEO and Chief Medical Officer at Sansom Clinic. These talks, like the one you're about to hear, are filled with valuable information presented by some of our most distinguished healthcare providers. Just a reminder, the information in this episode was current at the time of the recording, but please be aware that medical information is constantly changing. Now, on to the show. Hello, uh, we are here today to talk with one of Sansom Clinic's highly trained cardiologists, Dr. Michael Shinoda. We're gonna to talk to him about his cardiology work and his important research. Dr. Shinoda joined Sansom Clinic in 2011. He is board certified in both internal medicine and cardiology and interventional cardiology. He grew up in uh, Los Angeles area and then went eventually to medical school at Michigan State University. And then he wised up and came back to uh, sunny Southern California, where he did his residency in internal medicine at UCLA before going on to Cedars, Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles, where he did his fellowship in cardiology and then came back to UCLA to do interventional cardiology. So Mike, welcome. So glad to have you here. Let me start off with just pointing out that you are in a really intense surgical specialty which means your days are really heavily focused on clinical problems. Uh, how did you get interested in cardiology? Well, thank you, Kurt, Kurt for that wonderful introduction. You know, I, I, I was always interested in, in human physiology, um, and that's what drove me to my biology major. And then when I, when I went to medical school, I was even more interested in, in cardiac physiology. Um, it wasn't until medical school in which I started to do my first cardiac care unit rotation and subsequently watched my first coronary angiogram and angioplasty that I just thought, wait a minute, this person just had a 100% blocked artery. We opened it up, they're symptom-free and they're gonna go home in the next couple of days. And we just rescued this person from a, a major heart attack that I was like, sign me up for this career. I wanna, I wanna do this. I wanna help people in this manner. I remember Mike, I think I missed one of your degrees. I think after college and before medical school, you got a master's. Maybe you could remind us what that's in. Yes, I did a one-year accelerated master's program at, at Barry University in biomedical sciences, which w once again kind of dr drove home uh, the, the fact that, that I really did in, enjoy the biomedical sciences and in particular, you know, human physiology. And, and uh, after obtaining that degree, I decided I, I really wanted to go to medical school and become a physician. You mentioned about that first case you saw with an angioplasty. Were there, were there any other specialties that you considered in, after medical school or were you pretty much sold on cardiology? Yeah, I was on the fence between cardiology, vascular surgery, and plastic surgery. But again, after, after watching that, that first uh, angioplasty and angiogram, I, I, I really decided that, I, that I, wanted, I wanted to become a cardiologist and an interventional cardiologist to, to try to help people with minimally invasive procedures rather than your traditional open heart surgeries. You know, it's funny, Mike, as you know, I went to UC, I did my residency at UCLA and I remember uh, it was quite a bit before you, but I do remember that, that first time when angioplasties were brand new and just having that sense of absolute amazement at, at what could happen. 
Yeah, it's, it, it is a fantastic technology that has continued to evolve in everyday practice. But what you're doing now uh, with some of the valve work that you've done, maybe you could explain to uh, our, our listeners about some of the, I think, equally astonishing stuff that is being done uh, now by you and Dr. Aragon and others. Yes, absolutely. I, I would say, you know, one of the things that I enjoy about being in this field is, is the rapid evolving uh, technological advancements. And the best example of that is our approach to valve therapies. Over the past 10 years, we've had a revolution in the way that we treat patients with valvular heart disease, beginning with aortic stenosis, which is a narrowing of, of one of the major heart valves in the artery. In the, in the uh, past, we'd have to send someone to open heart surgery, put them on the heart-lung machine, stop their heart to cut out the valve and suture in a new one by, by a cardiothoracic surgeon. And now we have the ability to do that without open heart surgery, usually with a patient who's maybe just mildly sedated, and we're able to put in a new heart valve through a catheter through the leg um, and push the old valve out to the side with a balloon, put a new valve in its place, and the patient usually it stays about a day or so in the hospital and is able to go home within a day or two and have full functional recovery without the need for opening a person's chest or open heart surgery. Likewise, we've advanced that therapy also to the mitral valve in which we're able to fix a leaking mitral valve once again without open heart surgery or the heart lung machine on a uh, patient uh, by placing a clip across the valve strategically placed so we'd stop the valve from, from leaking. We also have a lot more transcatheter therapies for other valves uh, within the heart as well that are coming down the pipeline, including ones that we've been using in the pulmonic position for uh, patients with adult congenital heart disease. And we're also ev evaluating further therapies for another heart valve called a tricuspid valve on the right side of the heart in which we can either replace or clip the valve if it's leaking severely. Maybe uh, maybe it's worth it to, to explain to our listeners uh, before you could do these kind of aortic valve replacements, what patients were looking at in terms of uh, recovery. So with a traditional open heart surgery, the patients would be put on the heart lung machine. They'd spend a couple days in the ICU and then probably a five to seven day uh, visit in the hospital. And then I usually tell patients, most patients take about, you know, four to six, up to eight weeks to have a full recovery, which involves some intensive um, rehabilitation, sometimes in a dedicated facility and other times at home. With transcatheter aortic valve replacement, known as TAVR, patients don't have to go through that long hospital stay or rehabilitation process. Most patients get out within 24 to 48 hours and are back to functioning normally within about a week of the transcatheter valve replacement. Similarly, for uh, mitral valve repair through a procedure called the mitroclip, patients usually go home the next day and within about a week or two are back to functioning at their normal functional status or better than they were before. I know that you and, and Dr. Aragon have excellent reputations and have been bringing patients in from outside the area. Maybe you could just share sort of the volume of these of these uh, aortic valve replacements that you guys are doing. Yeah, we're, I mean, thankfully we we've uh, we started from scratch and started building this program up back in uh, 2013, and we've evolved this program to such a high standard that we we've been able to attract a lot of patients from. 
um, Santa Barbara as well as outside of Santa Barbara. We have a, quite a bit of encatchment area because of our, our volume. We've easily become one of the highest volume centers on, on, the, on the Central Coast. Um, and we've been able to advance our program to doing some pretty complex procedures as well, because just like in open heart surgery, there are routine cases and there are non-routine cases. And we're known to be able to take on the more difficult uh, tavern and mitroclip cases that are not so routine or are, are complex outside of uh, most care facilities abilities. And we've kind of advanced our program to the level of most programs that are only seen in, in academic or, or tertiary and even some quaternary care referral centers. And our volumes have um, rivaled those of, of some of our uh, nationally local um, academic centers. I talked in the introduction about some of the research you're doing. Maybe you could share with our audience what, what, what areas of uh, study are you doing research in right now? So we're currently one of the, the few sites that has been uh, approached and approved to do a new study looking at treating patients before they get to the point of having severe aortic stenosis and treating patients who have moderate aortic stenosis. So this is not waiting until the valve becomes severely degenerated and dysfunctional, but well, the question posed is what happens if we treat these patients before the valve gets to that critical phase where it's just not functioning not functioning very well and patients are starting to have significant symptoms. What if we treat these patients at an earlier time point in the progress of their disease? Will it change their outcome and affect their longevity? So we're going to be looking at that in a new and upcoming research trial in which we're evaluating those patients to see, do they do better if we treat them earlier upstream rather than waiting till it gets to the critical phase um, in, the, in the progress of their disease? We're also looking at um, patients in terms of whether or not it, it matters if we fix their arteries before or after the transcatheter aortic valve procedure. That question has remained an, an enigma within the uh, field of, of TAVR over the past decade. What do we do with these patients that have concomitant coronary artery disease? Is it better to fix the valve first and then fix the arteries or should we be fixing the arteries first and then the valve? That's going to be another randomized trial in which we're going to fix the arteries before and after the valve and compare these two patient cohorts to see who does better in terms of long-term uh, longevity and symptoms. That has the sound of a multi-center trial, I presume. These are huge multi-center international and national trials, correct? But that's really something that our small community of Santa Barbara here was chosen to participate. Absolutely. And once again, it's based on our, our high volume numbers, um, our wonderful outcomes that, that we've had over the past uh, five to seven years, as well as the complexity of the patients that, that we treat. But does this mean that patients locally who are uh, eligible could just participate right here in Santa Barbara? Absolutely. These are trials that normally would be seen only in a major academic center, and we have it right here in our backyard in our local community hospital, and these patients can get involved in these research trials and can be treated here for this. Perhaps a funny question to ask a doctor is, what advice can you give people so that they actually would never have to meet you professionally? That's actually a, a great question, and I, I always tell my patients, you you only wanna meet me at, in a social setting because I'm, I'm walking into, into your room, there's something going on with your heart that needs to be fixed. 
Um, so, you know, the, the current American Heart Association guidelines do advocate for a, a Mediterranean diet. A lot of the current research that we're seeing now actually is pointing even more aggressively towards a, a plant-based diet as much as possible, as we see that the uh, body's inflammatory markers are greatly decreased with switching over to a, to a plant-based diet, even compared to being a, a pescatarian, a, a vegetarian, and even patients who, who are, are vegan have much lower inflammatory markers, which we think leads to lower incidence of heart disease. In addition, the American Heart Association guidelines does recommend 30 minutes of exercise, moderate intensity exercise, at least five days a week. So I think following a good and healthy diet and exercising regularly, that takes care of about 80% of modifiable risk factors. Now, of course, there are patients that have a genetic predisposition to forming heart disease. And in those patients, even with following the guidelines, they may eventually develop heart disease that needs to be treated because of the genetics that were passed on to them uh, by their parents. But what we see even in those patients that have a genetic predisposition for forming heart disease, when they follow a heart healthy lifestyle, it delays their onset of, of disease, usually by about a decade or two. So I think regardless of what your genetics predispose you to, I think following the American Heart Association guidelines in terms of diet and exercise and um, and, and, and weight loss or, or keeping a, a, an adequate BMI, I think is the best way to avoid seeing a cardiologist or at least postpone it. As an internist, I often, of course, am getting prescriptions to patients and sometimes patients are really reluctant to take medications. Are there some medications that, you know, are are very uh, well known to perhaps uh, have to only meet you in a social context and not in a professional context. Yeah, I think, you know, over the past few decades, probably statins have been one of the, the, the biggest medications that's uh, persistently been shown in a multitude of studies over hundreds of thousands of patients to decrease the risk of advanced heart disease. And it's one of the few medications that have been shown to actually decrease mortality as well before and after the development of heart disease, especially in those patients with risk factors such as diabetes, cholesterol, and obesity. Um, I know they've gotten some bad rap in the media because of their uh, association with you know, muscle aches and pains. And then there's been some rumors of you know, earlier onset of diabetes and, and um, you know, Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease, which just hasn't bore out in any of the clinical trials, to be honest with you. And that the, the benefits of these medications far outweigh their, their, their few risks. Are you finding patients using any kind of technologies, you know, Apple watches or home EK, EKG machines? And, you know, what's your experience with that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, 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 I am a, a big proponent of, of technology. You know, I, I, I wear an Apple Watch as I'm a runner and I, I like to keep track of uh, my heart rate and the amount of exercise and what my, you know, uh, peak heart rates and uh, capacity is. So I'm, I'm a huge believer in, in wearable technologies. And I think it's going to transform the way we make diagnoses, especially in cardiology and especially in the field of, of arrhythmia management. I think it's been huge in, in the sense of being able to detect things like atrial fibrillation, PACs and, and PVCs, and, you know, extra heartbeats from the top and bottom chambers of the heart, uh, respectively. 
Um, I don't think they're quite at the level of being able to, to make um, you know, a definitive diagnosis, but they're definitely helpful to physicians when a patient feels an abnormal heart rhythm and is able to send me through a MyChart message, you know, their, their ECG is recorded by their Apple Watch or their, you know, mobile app, uh, ECG, like the Cardia app. And I think that warrants us further investigating and or confirming with our current technology that we have now, such as our ambulatory monitors, what the true diagnosis is. I think it's still early generation devices that um, is available to the consumer, but I think in the future, as, as the future iterations of these wearable technologies improve, just like our cell phones have improved dramatically over the past you know, 15 to 20 years, I think wearable technologies are gonna be a, a huge boost to our ability to make diagnoses, not only of arrhythmias, but there are some indications that things such as early onset heart failure um, and in the and also um, uh, myocardial infarctions in the form of um, increasing or decreasing oxygen demands by certain wearable de devices um, will be available to the public in the future and it will be a great assistance to us as cardiologists. I know I, I sometimes you know patients will bring their Apple watch in and then ask me you know how do I use it and then I realize that I, it's getting to be very different, the skills you need as a doctor. Right. It's, uh, it's almost humbling the technology that's out there and being able to keep up with it. I, I sometimes have to defer to my kids to explain to me, you know, how, how to uh, work an app on my iPhone or iPad, right? Because they know exactly um, how to work this app or, or get this app to, to look a certain way. Whereas I, I would struggle for, for hours and my kids could do it in, in 30 seconds. Um, so that, that's helpful to me to have my kids around. They're, they're kind of my, my default for some of these, these apps. But with that said, I would say that, you know, the, the current wearable technologies isn't 100% accurate. I, again, I think it's, it's, it's a good screening method to um, allow your doctor to know that maybe something's going on. Um, you know, I would say, you know, half the time, you know, when the Apple Watch reads EKG, the EKG is possible AFib, it's not, it might be just baseline artifacts. But again, it alerts us that something's going on and it may warrant further investigation. Let's switch gears for a second. Um, at the clinic, we do have a number of nurse practitioners and physician's assistants, and it might be helpful for you to explain to our listeners how it is that that you as a cardiologist work with uh, what we call APPs or advanced practice providers. Absolutely. I, I would say that the role that advanced practice providers has played over the past decade that I've uh, been, been in practice has changed dr dramatically. Um, they, they are an absolute invaluable care team member. You know, they, they serve as, as, as a bridge to physicians, if you will, and they allow for daily and um, exclusive access to them immediately to, to patients. They um, round with us in the hospital. There are, they participate in the daily management of, of a lot of our patients. Um, and then when physicians such as I, who may be in the operating room or in the cath lab for prolonged procedures, they're able to check in on patients, make sure they're doing okay, come up with a care plan, run it by us, and get that patient on their way rather than having to wait for us to step out of the operating room to see or manage those patients. 
In addition, a lot of these APPs form deep and meaningful relationships with these patients because they are involved in all aspects of, of their care. Um, even some of the, the, the social aspects that you know, physicians may, may not be aware or cognizant of because of the limited interactions that we have with these patients. And it's usually at certain intervals that we see these patients, whereas the APPs have a much more, you know, patients have a much more direct line to the APPs, if you will. And so they get a better sense of what's going on with the patient as a whole, rather than just the independent disease states that we see as specialists. Yeah, uh, thank, thanks for clarifying that. I think it's important for people to know what, what valuable roles those individuals play at the clinic and, and really throughout the healthcare system. When you think about the, the future of cardiology, Mike, what, what are you most excited about? Well, as a, as a structural interventionist, uh, I, I am most excited about, again, the minimally invasive procedures and the way that they're evolving. You know, we started out with only being able to treat one heart valve, and, and now we're treating all the heart valves without open heart surgery with minimally invasive techniques. There is an evolution here in, in the works. And some people see it as even a disruptive technology where we're doing so many procedures now without open heart surgery um, that most of these valves eventually will all be treated for every disease state without a, a, an open heart surgery requisite. There are certain disease states now that we still can't get to with a transcatheter because the technology isn't available. Valves that are heavily calcified or have a ton of um, calcium around it on the left side of the heart, like mitral stenosis or rheumatic mitral valve disease is difficult to treat with our current transcatheter therapies, but there are valves that are being developed now that we can treat with a transcatheter therapy. Likewise, severely leaky aortic valves that don't have any calcium. Well, it's hard to put a valve stent there in that position because there's not much for the valve stent to hold on to. But again, we're currently in, in clinical trials evaluating newer style devices that can be placed and treat patients with a severely leaking aortic valve. In addition, the right-sided heart valves continue to challenge us because of their, their location and, and anatomy. But again, uh, transcatheter therapies continue to evolve to be able to treat those in different and unique ways. I also think that in cardiology, we're moving more towards personalized tailored medicines, even with the medications that we're prescribing to patients, looking at things like genetic predispositions and, and genes and being able to tailor certain uh, therapies to patients and their genes, I think is, is, is a, um, a, big, uh, a big gap that we right now at this point in time don't have the knowledge or know-how or ability to treat, but I think that we're moving towards that in cardiology. Switching gears a lot right now. You mentioned that your kids help you with uh, uh, technology. Um, maybe you could share, uh, what is it that you like to do for fun? Not that we give you any time to actually have fun, but uh, <laughs> when you do have some time, what are, what are your hobbies? Yes, well, I, I definitely enjoy spending time with my wife and, and, and three children. Um, I'm a, I'm a avid runner and I, I, I definitely enjoy running. Uh, I'm picking up tennis because my kids are all into tennis and they can all beat me. So I, I got to get on the courts and get better at that. Um, we also, uh, enjoy traveling internationally as, as a family. So whenever we have some downtime, 
uh, we do enjoy um, you know, the experiences that are afforded to us by international travel. Well, Mike, that sounds like a good note for us to end on. Uh, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk uh, with me and with our patients who are listening. You know, we like to talk about in Santa Barbara and at Sansom Clinic that we have big city medicine with small town convenience and small town compassion. And I think that uh, you're a great example of that. So thank you so much for all the work that you do and for spending some time with us this afternoon. Thank you so much, Kurt, for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for Sansom Speaks. We hope you found this to be valuable information. To view all of our talks, please visit sansomspeaks.sansomclinic.org.